Welcome to Design for Joy, the radio ministry of Quail Lakes Baptist Church in Stockton, California, celebrating the fact that God's people are designed for the joyful Christian life. We are glad that you could join us for today's broadcast with our pastor and teacher, Dr. Mark Mafucci. And now, let's go to the teaching for today. Turn with me, please, to the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. That's our passage today, Hebrews chapter 10. We are going through the book of Hebrews in this series, and today, come to chapter 10, our starting reading will be in verse 19. But here's the key concept for today. You can live in the grip of His grace. What I mean by that is a close awareness on the the ongoing care of Jesus in your life, the grip of His grace. Hebrews chapter 10. And while you're finding it, I'll, I'll share a story that comes from the memoirs of former British Prime Minister Tony Blair. He writes in his memoirs a story about a friend of his whose family emigrated from Europe to the United States. And when they came, they were poor, working class people just struggling to get by. And early in his life, this friend's father passed away. And so he was, he was raised by his mother. And eventually, he became a very successful businessman in his own right. He traveled the world uh, in a, as a part of his business. And, and often when he traveled, he invited his mother, elderly mother, to, to go with him, to see the other parts of the world and, and to, just to, to accompany him. But she always refused. She never wanted to leave the United States. Eventually, his mother passed away, and when they were, as they were going through the estate and, and the things that she left behind, they knew that she had a safe deposit box in the bank, and, and in this safe deposit box, she kept her most valued jewelry. And so they went to that box, and sure enough, they opened it up. There were a few items of jewelry there, but interestingly enough, inside the safe deposit box was another box, a locked box with no key. And they thought to themselves, what could our mother possibly have that was so valuable that she put it inside a locked box inside the safe deposit box? So they were intrigued, and they had that box drilled open. When they opened it, what they found was only her citizenship papers. That which mattered to her most, that she valued the most, was that she was a citizen of the United States of America. And I thought to myself, if that citizenship is so valuable, and it is, how much more valuable is our citizenship in heaven? How much more valuable is our relationship with Jesus Christ? And that is the point that the Hebrew author is making in the passage that we'll look at today. His great desire is that we understand the value of what we have in Jesus Christ. And see it not as a system of religion that we kind of go through the motions for, but rather as an ongoing love relationship in which we live day in and day out. A relationship that guides our actions. Yes, there are responsibilities in this relationship, but it is a relationship with the Almighty, what I call the grip of His grace. Read with me, starting in verse 19. You follow along as I read. This is what he says. 
He says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Did you hear the four positive commands in that passage? They are, let us draw near, let us hold fast, let us consider, and let us encourage one another. First of all, let us draw near. The Hebrew author wants us to understand that in Jesus, we have the fulfillment of all of the rituals of the Old Testament, all of the, the practices of the sacrificial system and the priestly function, all of that pointed to Jesus Christ, and in him, it all is fulfilled. And now we have an invitation to a nearness to him not through a human intermediary, but directly to God, you and God, drawing near to one another. In James, it puts it this way, come near to God, and he will come near to you. That's what we're invited to. And it's something that we must think about, a tangible kind of uh, nearness that God is with me no matter where I go, because it's easy to fall into a practice of even talking about God and thinking about God, serving Him or singing His praises, yet exist at, an, at a distance from Him, somehow not picturing Him involved in our daily lives. But like we sang earlier in the service, we are friends of God. In fact, the imagery here of our nearness with God calls two pictures to mind. We are friends of God, and we are priests of God. Friends of God. Friendship at its most basic is the idea that somebody likes me, and I like them back. With a friend, I am accepted. A friend is somebody who's patient with me. A friend understands me. In a friend's company, I can be relaxed and comfortable and at ease. But there's a stumbling block sometimes when we start to think of God in relationship to friendship, that we can be friends of God. Because we assume somehow that God is mad at us all the time, that God is thundering around heaven, muttering all kinds of things under his breath about how we puny humans have let him down. He's busy with important projects running the universe, and somehow if we approach him, we are an intrusion and a bother, and nobody wants to feel like they're an intrusion and a bother, and so we hesitate. Even if we believe that we're going to be in heaven by and by, in the here and now, it's hard to imagine God near to us in a friendship relationship. We know what we're like. We know how, how we've let him down. And it's hard to imagine that God would actually like us. We assume that we are unworthy. 
But look at verse 17, just above the passage that we started. There he's quoting the prophet Jeremiah. He says, God speaking, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. In other words, when you go to God in nearness, and, he, and as a child of his, covered by the blood of Jesus, you don't carry with you the record of your wrongs. God practices the discipline that I call blessed forgetfulness. Blessed forgetfulness is letting people start over. Blessed forgetfulness is giving people a clean slate. God practices blessed forgetfulness. We ought to practice blessed forgetfulness with others. Do you carry grudges? When you look at somebody, do you see a long list of their infractions? And does that color your opinion of them? Blessed forgetfulness allows people new beginnings. It is found in forgiveness. God says, I'm putting memories aside. I do not see those sins and those lawless acts anymore. And once you're pardoned, you have access to God and you don't come tainted. He sees you as pure. Listen to this from Psalm 103. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. You have a friend in God. You are a friend of God and you are also a priest. That's the second image that's drawn to mind. He says, you have confidence, verse 19, to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body. Those would have been shocking words for a Hebrew Christian to hear. They grew up in a system where only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies in the temple, and before that the tabernacle, and then only once a year on the Day of Atonement. But now they're being invited into the holy place themselves. You have access to the presence of God, not through a human curtain, but through the broken body of Christ and his shed blood. You can draw near to God. And what's required of you as you draw near to God is you see yourself as that priest able to be directly praying to God, confessing to God without a human intermediary, but alone by yourself. And the priest not only draws near to God in confession, but also represents God in the world. And that's what we're called to, friendship and priesthood. And what's required, he goes on in verse 22, is sincere hearts and fullness of faith. Verse 22, it says, Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, having our bodies washed with pure water. Here are the, the requirements in terms of what's necessary for that nearness to be true in your life. First of all, it must be a sincere searching. You must sincerely desire him as a part of your life. It's easy to fake it in the things of faith, but it is deadly. We must be sincere 
not bluffing our way through, through the Christian life. Sometimes the best way to, to imagine something is to consider its opposite. And we've all heard, I think, from time to time, official words that we knew were not sincere. I saw an example of this back in 2003. I actually wrote it down. There was an assistant U.S. attorney called, his name was Kenneth Taylor, and he had uh, a case going on in Kentucky. And somehow he was so frustrated in the process of getting jurors sat for this particular case that he called the people of this region in Kentucky, quote, illiterate cave dwellers. Okay, well that made the news. And it made the news in Kentucky. And uh, Kentucky people were not so pleased to be called that. So eventually he had to issue an apology. And I wrote it down. Here's the apology he issued. The comment was not meant to be a regional slur. And to the extent that it was misinterpreted to be one, I apologize. <laughs> what? So illiterate cave dweller is a compliment now? I mean, you know, how insincere can you be? But it's easy to take that same kind of sense of, well, I'll play with words. Well, I'll pull the wool over their eyes. Well, I'll fake my way through. It's easy to take that into your relationship with Jesus. Don't do that. In order to draw near, you must have a sincere heart. And you must come, verse 22, in full assurance of faith. Fullness of faith could be the way to translate that phrase. Fullness of faith is a two-step process. Fullness of faith starts with faith in Jesus Christ, faith in his work on the cross, faith in what he's done for you, that Jesus is who he said he is. He did what he said he would do. And then when you have that faith, you must have, secondly, faith in faith, faith that it will work for you. Faith that it really will save your soul forever. See, some people think, well, it's all about me just kind of having these tingling feelings all the time. No, no. Fullness of faith, faith in Christ and faith in faith that what the Word of God says is true and it will work for you. And then he says, having been cleansed. Once again, he's drawing the, the image from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, when a priest was installed into service, he would be sprinkled with a mixture of blood and water. And it symbolized his spiritual purification, symbolizing that cleansing that makes him fit for service. And the author is calling those images to mind, and he's saying, you have had your heart sprinkled by the blood of Christ spiritually, and your bodies washed with pure water. That's an allusion to the baptism that we just saw right there. That statement, that making that declaration that, that I have died to my sin and I'm raised again to new life and I want to be pure for Christ. I want to live a pure life. These waters have washed me. He invites us to draw near to God in those ways and know that he is with us. But secondly, he invites us, let us hold fast. Let us hold fast, verse 23, and let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Hold unswervingly to hope. We are meant to be people of hope. Hope is meant to characterize us. In situations where others might despair, we are to have hope. Why? Because our God is a God of promise. 
All throughout the scripture, we see God making promises that only God can keep. And he is a promise keeper. God keeps his promises. I look throughout this chapter myself, sensing the, the need to, to, to connect hope to promise. And I, and I said, well, what are the promises that I see right here in chapter 10 of the book of Hebrews? And I'm not going to take time to read the verses, but just scan down the chapter with me and claim these promises. In verse 10, he promises that the sacrifice of Jesus is enough to save you from your sins and you can be pardoned. In verse 13, he promises that Jesus will be victorious. We who trust him are on the winning side. In verse 16, he promises to write his law within you so that you are a new person from the inside out. It's not a veneer on the outside of your life. In, prom in verse 17, he promises that he will no longer remember your sin. He does not see you by the label of the worst thing you've ever done. When God looks at you, he doesn't see cheat or liar or drunkard or addict. He sees son or daughter because of the blood of Christ. In verse 25, he promises that there is a day that is coming which will be the end of history. And in verse 30, he promises that day includes judgment. But verse 39, he promises that the believer's souls are saved from destruction because of his saving work. All of these promises, just in a glance through one chapter, multiply that throughout the Word of God, and you find a God of promise who keeps his promises so that you can be a person of hope. Confess the hope. The hope that, that confession is the essence of what the gospel message is. We are meant to hold on to that in hope and then speak it. The hope that we profess. But there's another command here. Verse 24, he says, consider one another. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. 25, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. First of all, let us consider each other. He's saying that the Christian life is a life lived for others. The Christian life is a journey of faith where we ask ourselves the question, how is the way I'm living helping other people do good deeds? How is the way that I'm living helping other people do the deeds of love? See, see, he's asking us to think about the effect we are having on one another. From the words that we say, from the expression on our faith as we walk around the hallways of church, you are always having an effect on somebody else. And you should desire the effect of spurring them on toward love. And what will be called for if we're really going to spur one another on toward love and really be an encouragement? Well, verse 25 tells us what will be called for is presence with one another, gathering together. One of the things that we review each time we teach a, a, a membership workshop here at Quail is we review the expectations of the members of Quail Lakes Baptist Church. That's my part part of my part of the seminar, is I review the expectations. These are the things we expect you to do if you're going to be a member here at Quail Lakes Baptist Church. And there's a, a list of things that we discuss, but you know what the first one is? The very first thing, one word, attend. We expect you to attend. 
Now, sometimes that gets a laugh in the class when I teach it. If you're going to be a member here, we expect you to actually come, but you would be surprised the number of people who would love to have their name on the church roll but don't feel compelled to actually attend. If you don't attend, we will come seek you out. And we will ask you, why are you not attending? Are you sick? Are you dead? Are you mad at me? Sometimes that happens. What's the problem? Because attendance is like the first aspect of being a part of the family. If I had a nickel for every time I heard the phrase, but it's my only day to sleep in, I'd be a rich man today. First of all, I don't really believe that. Second of all, boo-hoo, the scripture says, get up and come to church. We are commanded to faithfully come together. But it's much more than just putting your time in, you see. It's not just kind of like there's magic in coming in and out of the church building. The word that's translated in the NIV, don't give up, or in some of your translations say forsake not, that phrase is the same Greek word that Matthew translates the words of Jesus as he hung on the cross and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a very strong word, and here's what it means. It means to abandon in time of need. And what we're saying as we gather together week after week is, I have not abandoned what is eternal. I have not abandoned what is important, and I have not abandoned you, my brothers and sisters, because we are part of this movement called Christianity that is changing the world. And I have not abandoned you in the process. We are in this together. And I want you to see how that links to encouragement in verse 25. See, let us not give up meeting together, but let us encourage one another. The way that we encourage one another is being involved in one another's lives. It's not just in worship, but it includes worship. But it's in Bible studies that we come go to. It's in the hospitality moments where you open your home to one another. It's in the Sunday school classes where you study the Word together and the prayer groups where you intercede for the needs that come in on all these cards every single Sunday. It's all these ways and many more as we serve side by side and are mobilized into our Go projects to, to minister to the community. This, all of this is presence in one another's life, and that's what's encouraging. You know, it encourages us to find that there are others who are interested in learning about the faith. It encourages us to find that there are others who, who, who enjoy singing praises to God. It encourages us to see that others are asking the exact same questions I'm asking. How do I live for Jesus in this sinful world? And what things in my life need to be seen as different so that Jesus shines through me? As we ask those questions and find the answers side by side, that's encouraging. And that's what we're called to do. The church is to be a dynamic place of mutual sharing, living in this, not religion, but relationship, and working that relationship out side by side. No one can do it alone. We all need each other. But doing it together, and all of this is what I call living in the grip of grace. It is drawing near, holding fast, considering one another, 
and encouraging one another as we gather. We need it. One woman writes about the presence of Christ in her life in this way. She says, I'm putting away the groceries and the kids are tearing through the house with the empty bags on their heads, screaming. I start to feel frazzled on the inside when I say, Jesus, you are here. You are with me. You're all around me. Thank you for the food I'm putting away. Thank you for this house. Thank you for these cabinets. Thank you for these noisy kids. She goes, I don't always remember to do that. But when I do, I keep Jesus near me. This is the grip of grace in which we live. And this is the journey that we are to encourage each other on day by day. Hold fast to him. Because what you have in him is, in, is of infinite value. A relationship with Almighty God. Let's pray. Lord, we want to be near to you. We want to sense your nearness, but we know it's not all about a sensation. It is about a fact, a relationship that is ours. And so sometimes when the feelings go away, remind us that you are here. Enable us to visualize you side by side with us as we walk through this week. And Satan will throw up roadblocks. He's going to try to dissuade us and he's going to try to tempt us. But Lord, we pray that in you we find strength. Lord, we ask that we could represent you well and that other people looking on us would see the love of Jesus in action. Give us words, give us witness, and give us strength, and give us courage so that we might live for you. For we ask all of this in Christ's name. Dismiss us with your blessing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.